0: Some of you remember that team. They had guys like Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco and Dave Parker and others, Dave Henderson and so on. Guys that just absolutely bludgeoned the ball. They were known as the Bash Brothers because of how far and how hard they hit it. And they also, when they hit a home run, they did what was known as the forearm bash. They'd come through after it and they'd bash forearms together and it was just this really powerful, manly sort of thing they did. And so they grunted a lot and they, you know, they did some things like that, but they hit a ton of home runs. The game so far in game one of the nineteen ninety eight or nineteen eighty eight World Series rather had gone the way of the Oakland Athletics. The A's uh, had lost the lead early, but they had taken it back, and Seiko hit a grand slam at about the fourth inning, and it looked as if they were going to cruise to a World Series victory. They were highly favored, heavily favored in the, in the series, and this was just one of the four games they were going to roll to victory in. The moment that you just saw included, as you, as you saw, the pitcher there. His name was Dennis Eckersley, and he had just come off one of the greatest seasons any relief pitcher had ever had. As far as giving up runs and so on, he was dominant. Nobody scored off Dennis Eckersley. And you saw the little graphic they put up there that said he hadn't allowed a home run since August. That game was being played in October. He just didn't give up runs. And so for the Dodgers, it was it was over. They were at home, but it was over. No chance. The ace was on the mound, and they had a slugger who was hobbling to the plate. And it was over. I want you to turn with me to the book of Esther. And we're going to look at a story that really highlights what happens when it's just about over. The series that we're rounding down toward the next couple of weeks, leading up to our 170th anniversary celebration on November 6th, the series is called Celebrate. What we've done is look back at the Old Testament, at some of the the festivals that God commanded the Israelites to celebrate. The one we're actually going to see today was not one that He commanded, but one that spontaneously came out of a really cool event, that God did, even though the people really weren't exactly sure what God was doing at the time. And so in Esther, if you want to kind of make some notes on this, we're going to, we're going to focus on really the whole book, but really zone in later on on a, on a passage in chapter nine. But I want to walk you through the story to kind of set up how it is that God was going to, to come through here. Uh, for the Israelites. In in chapter one of the book of Esther, and if you just kind of want to flip along with me, I'm not going to take the time to read all these verses because uh, we just don't have time for that this morning. But in in uh, chapter one, beginning around verse 10, uh, the, the the king of Persia finds himself in need of a new queen. Uh, some of your versions will call him Ahasuerus. Others will say his name was Xerxes. They are interchangeable. And the king of Persia finds himself in need of of a new queen. The queen, Vashti, had disobeyed a direct order from the king, which was apparently a major no-no. You didn't do that stuff. You're the queen. You do what you're told. You get in line, and the king is, is it. And so she said, no, I'm not doing that. Well, he obviously didn't like that, and he said, it's time for me to find a new queen. He consults with his advisors. They tell him, in fact, that if you allow her to get away with this, Then you will have absolute anarchy on your hands. All of the women of the kingdom will tell their husbands, no, I'm not doing this. And you will have anarchy. And so you must crush the rebellion right now, king. Crush it from the top. Do not let these women get away with telling their husbands anything but yes, sir. And that's what they, uh, they told the king. That's about right. That's what they told him. Read it. They told him that. The king agrees. He says, yeah, we've got a problem. This is going to lead to major problems. We cannot have this. And so he deposes the queen, tells her never to appear before him again, and he seeks out a new queen. In fact, he rounds up all the eligible ladies in the kingdom, and he has them brought to him to be part of his harem. The Jews happened to be part of Persia at that time, or at least some of the Jews. As a result of the exile that had taken place during the time of Daniel, there are still some Jews there in Persia. And there was one man, the story tells us, a Jewish man named Mordecai who was serving the king as a guard during that time, and he had legal custody of his cousin whose name was Esther. The the title of the book, obviously, is her name. In chapter 2, verse 7, we get a description of Esther that is rarely given for, for anyone in the Bible. When you read the scripture, you don't get a lot of details about what people look like. Very rarely does the Bible tell you in very any kind of detail what folks look like. And when the Bible does, it means that is really accurate and something special. In chapter 2, verse 7, the version that I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Version puts it this way. Esther had a beautiful figure and she was extremely good looking. Now that means that this, yes, she absolutely was. She was a runway model kind of girl. And so the king obviously noticed her. And she was taken to the palace with the rest of the girls to receive extra beauty treatments, the Bible tells us, and to get prepared to meet the king. And it was only when the king summoned one of these girls that they were to appear before him, spend time with him, and then only when he called her back should she appear again. Now, in the course of events, the king became very fond of Esther. In fact, she became his favorite among his harem, and he declared her to be the queen. Placed the crown on her head and and sent out a royal decree that Esther was now the queen of Persia. Mordecai uh, later learns he's a guard, of course, as I told you, guard of the palace. He later learns about a plot to kill the king and since his cousin is now the queen he informs her she tells the king he has these people arrested and mordecai this jewish guard saves the king's life as these two others were executed now sometime after that a man named haman was elevated to the role of prime minister in the kingdom of persia and he did not like mordecai Mordecai was a guard, and every time Haman, the prime minister, would pass by him, the guards were expected to bow before the prime minister. Mordecai refused to bow. He said, I will bow before no one but my God. And you can imagine that the prime minister, Haman, didn't care too much for that. And he vowed that he would have revenge on Mordecai for this disrespect. And his plot, his scheme, was very vicious. He learned that Mordecai was a Jew, not a native Persian And so he schemed, Haman did, to have all the Jews exterminated. He cast lots, the Bible tells us, which is basically rolling the dice to figure out what day will I do this. He determined which day he went before the king. He told the king that an entire ethnic group was threatening to take down the Persian kingdom. And the king better do something about it. And so the king, unknowingly, signs a decree not only to kill all of the Jews, but ultimately to kill his queen as well, who was also a Jew. In chapter 4, Mordecai found out, and as you can imagine, he was deeply, deeply upset. He didn't know what to do. All the Jews began to weep, the Bible tells us. They fasted. They were praying for deliverance. Esther's servants come and tell her the news, and she doesn't know what to do either. She doesn't really think there's anything that she can do. She and Mordecai eventually, they have a conversation, and they talk about it, and he says, "'Look, you've got to go before the king.'" But the rules were that nobody appeared before the king without an imitation. In fact, doing so was a capital offense. You would just be executed nearly on the spot. You did not show up before the king unannounced. It was something you just simply didn't do. But in chapter 14, or chapter 4, rather, verse 14, Mordecai tells Esther these words, If you keep silent at this time, liberation and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's household will be destroyed. And he says this, who knows, perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And so as chapter four closes, Esther decides Mordecai's right. And it's time to go before the king, she thinks, even if it's against the law and even if she faces some very strict penalties as a result. And in chapter five, she goes before the king. He didn't have her killed, thankfully. He invites her, or she invites him, rather, to dinner along with Haman. And Haman, as chapter 5 tells us, in the meantime, all along is still continuing his plot. In fact, at the same time that Esther has invited the king and his prime minister to dinner, Haman has constructed the gallows on which Mordecai and his people will be hanged. And so as chapter 5 tells us in the book of Esther, is it over. It's the bottom of the ninth. There's two outs, they're down a run, the closer's on the mound, and they've got no shot, none. Now the Jews, our spiritual ancestors, by the way, you read the Old Testament, understand this is God's people that leads up to who we are today as believers. It was through the Jews that God did His work. It was through the Jews that Jesus has come, and through the Jews that we have received our blessing of the Messiah So they're our spiritual ancestors, and they've faced this problem again and again and again throughout the Old Testament, that it's over. And whether it was slavery in Egypt, whether it was their own sin, whether it was a giant in the field threatening to destroy all of them named Goliath, whether it was exile or whether it was death warrants, they're constantly facing the threat that it's over. You ever felt like that? Like it's over? When you hear the words, I want a divorce... Or it's cancer. Or you're fired. Or whatever it is that someone has told you that immediately just signals in your mind it's over. This relationship, this life, this job, whatever it may be, it's over. Or maybe in your own mind you just simply believe it's over. I'll never change. Nothing I do works. I never do anything right. Life is never going to get any better. It's over. That's exactly how the Israelites felt. They felt threatened. They felt scared. They, They felt abandoned. They were angry. They were confused. And they were done. It was over. There was no way that life was going to get any better based on what had happened to them. And to make it worse... They couldn't see what, if anything, God was doing. Do you realize that the name of God is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther? It's the only book in the Bible where God's name is not mentioned. It's nowhere. Now, I'll tell you this, though. That's really the theme of the book of Esther. That God is always working even when we can't see Him working. That even though He might not be seen, He certainly, He makes an appearance and He will eventually as we see in the story, change the game for the Israelites. His solution for their problem of it being over is always dramatic, always heroic, and always right on time. Let's go back to the book of Esther in chapter 5. As I said, she found favor, Esther did, with the king, which was very improbable. Not likely that that was to happen. They have a problem, it's over, and she goes before the king, and she finds favor. In chapter 6, we're told that while he's waiting to go to dinner with her, and and the next day that's going to happen, the king couldn't sleep. He's an insomniac, and he's having some struggles, and maybe he's worried, and he's up late at night. And so he says, read to me the record of the day's events that have just happened. And eventually, he learns about Mordecai saving his life. And in a wonderful piece of irony... The king asked Haman, his prime minister, what should be done for someone that the king wants to honor and to celebrate? And Haman goes on and on and on and on and on about all these things that should be done, because you know why he thought that he was the one that the king wanted to honor? As it turns out, it was Mordecai that the king wanted to honor, and he says... The king does to Haman at the end of Haman's big rant about all that should be done for this incredible man that the king wants to honor. Haman, I want you to go and do all of that for Mordecai. (laughs) Oh, man, can you imagine? And so Haman, as it turns out, was put in charge of the party for Mordecai, his hated enemy. In chapter 7, at dinner with Esther and Haman, the king is told by the queen, of the plot to kill her people. The king is furious and he asks, who's done this? And Haman, there shaking, is pointed to by Esther and says it's him. Haman, interestingly and ironically enough, is subsequently executed on the very gallows that he built to have Mordecai and his people hanged. In chapter 8, the king rescinds the edict to destroy all the Jews, and he even gave the Jews permission to go out and destroy their enemies for a couple days. So not only the improbable, but the impossible has happened. God proves again that he's in the business of doing both the improbable and the impossible. He turns around an impossible situation for the Jews, using Esther to do it just at the right time for such a time as this. The story with the Dodgers, by the way, goes on. Evan, if you'll turn those lights down, we'll look at some more of it. I tell you, there's nothing more dramatic than a walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth inning. They call it a walk-off because the defense just walks off the field. (laughs) They don't know what else to do. Did you see those guys in the opposing dugout? They didn't know what to do, did they? The A's thought they had the game won, and yet Kirk Gibson says, no, 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 no. He steps up to the plate in the bottom of the ninth, game on the line, and it looks as if nothing good is going to happen for the Dodgers, and he reaches out on a 3-2 pitch and parks one in the right field bleachers. And as Vin Scully, the great Vin Scully, just said, in a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. It's still one of the most dramatic moments I've ever seen on a baseball field. There's nothing, as I said, more exciting, more dramatic, I think, in all of sports, than the walk-off home run when you just don't expect it. And for the Jews, in the book of Esther, it was the bottom of the ninth. There were two outs, and there's a full count. They're down to their last strike. And it looks as if who they're facing is going to win the game. Dennis Eckersley on the mound for the A's hadn't given up a home run since August. Kirk Gibson couldn't walk. You need your legs to hit, by the way. And yet, in typical fashion, God hit a bomb to win it for the Jews. He walked it off. Even when it seemed like life was over, even when there was no chance of reversing the king's decree, it seemed that's when God stepped up. They couldn't see what he was doing. They couldn't see what he was preparing. You know, in fact, later on it was told that Kirk Gibson had had quietly slipped down into the batting cage behind the dugout under the stadium and he was taking swings just to get ready for that moment. He could barely walk. It seemed as if he would not contribute whatsoever to the game, and yet he was preparing. And in similar fashion, they couldn't see what God was doing. No one really knew. Everyone thought it was over until Gibson stepped to the plate. And even then, it looked like he could do nothing about it. I didn't show you the whole bat. It's about an eight-minute at bat, by the way. It's incredible, about ten pitches. And over and over, he fouls a pitch off, and he, and he fouls one to first base, and it rolls foul, and he tries to run, and it's almost as if he hobbles, and he's going to fall down. And it's this ultra-dramatic moment, almost like he's trying to create it, like he knows what's coming here in just a minute. The count goes to three and two. And he calls time, if you saw that. He calls time and he backs away. And he later told the story that in that moment he remembered what his hitting coach told him, that at three and two, three balls and two strikes, that the pitcher, Dennis Eckersley, likes to throw a slider that breaks down and in. Until that point he had thrown all fastballs and Gibson backs out and he thinks, here comes the slider. And he knew what nobody else knew. And as a result, he could see what no one else could see. And he was ready like no one could have known. And in the moment when it looked like he was just going to take a token at bat, he wins the game for the Dodgers. And in the moment when the Jews thought God's not available, he's not showing up, he's not paying attention, he's really hurt somewhere, he can't come out of the dugout, God shows up and in typical fashion and in great irony walks it off for the Jews. He's not mentioned in the book of Esther because he doesn't have to be. It's understood. They knew who was the game changer. They knew who could do the improbable and the impossible. It looked like Haman had the upper hand, like it was finally over for the Jews after all those years of God's promises, like God wasn't going to come through. But God had placed Esther there strategically, it says, for such a time as this. And God knew what he was doing, and he came through. At the right time. Now you fast forward a few hundred years from the book of Esther, and you see God again doing the impossible this time through Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. On the cross, do you understand that God hit a walk off home run against sin for us? That three days later, He walked it off against death. When the tomb burst open and Jesus rose again, God did the impossible. We were under the penalty and the power of sin, standing deservedly so under the wrath of God for all eternity. And yet God not only did the improbable, he did the impossible. And not through an earthly king. Not through a military dictator. Not even through the Jewish high priest. But through one who would suffer, one who was ridiculed, one who was beaten, one who looked so incapable of doing anything about the situation. One who would make the rest of the world scratch their collective heads. One who was sent for such a time as this. You go back to the book of Esther. After God did the impossible for the Jews, they they instituted something spontaneously. And that is, is really our response. They began to celebrate the impossible. I want you to look with me in Esther chapter 9, in verse 20. A spontaneous celebration erupts at this point. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews of King Xerxes' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month Adar every year because during those days the Jews got rid of their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. In chapter nine, verse twenty-three, so the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, the son of Hamathada, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy him. He cast the poor, that is, the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan of Haman be uh, that Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head. And that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word poor, which means lot. Because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and had, what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. These these days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city, so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life, and their memory will not fade from their descendants. So Mordecai orders a spontaneous celebration. Nothing had been commanded by God. Remember, God is not overtly seen in the book of Esther. And yet as a result of they know know who had come through for them, Mordecai... uh, orders a spontaneous celebration. It's a new festival instituted to celebrate what God had done for them, to commemorate that God did the impossible, turning it says their sorrow into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They lived it up for these two days. They ate, they rejoiced, they sent gifts to each other, and they still by the way observe this festival. They still every year they celebrate it's called the feast of lots. They celebrate that although Haman cast the lot, he rolled the dice to destroy him, their lot was in the hands of God, and he rescued them. Interestingly enough, it's a very noisy and happy festival. They reenact the setting. And the little kids are given noisemakers and they're told at the right time that when Haman's name is mentioned, they boo and they hiss and they yell and scream and they shake their little shakers. And, and then when Mordecai or Esther are mentioned, they clap and they celebrate. And it's a big festival for the Jews that they recognize, here's what God did for us in the bottom of the ninth. They celebrate the impossible thing that God did to rescue them from their enemy. And church, looking at the impossible that God has done for us in Jesus, there's only one thing left for us to do, and that is to celebrate the impossible. We celebrate it through our repentance, through our belief in Jesus. We celebrate it by letting Jesus saturate every, every part of our lives. And you can count on it today, even when you feel like it's over. The Dodgers, by the way, went on to do the impossible. They beat the A's in five games to win the 1988 World Series. Nobody thought they'd win one game, much less four. Everybody thought the A's would sweep them. They only won one game. That moment of Gibson's salvation, if you will, carried them to further victory. And Jesus wants to do the same for you and for me. He offers salvation once and for all for him to take over your life, to cleanse you, forgive you from all sin, and give you, as the video we saw with the Operation Christmas Child, a new life. And it's required for entrance into heaven. The workday is cool, but not quite required. New life, however, is required for entrance into heaven. You must be, the Bible says, born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven in the state in which you were born physically. You cannot do it. You are dead in your sin. And apart from new life, resurrection in Jesus Christ... You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It is only through Jesus Christ, through his doing the impossible, and that is making us new again and resurrecting our dead souls. Only through that impossible can we enter the kingdom of heaven. And just like Gibson's home run can compel the Dodgers and propel them to greater victory, our salvation in Jesus does the same thing. Because let me tell you, Jesus can walk it off in your broken marriage in your desperate situation, in your hopelessness and depression, in your confusion. And I wonder this morning if you'd start praying for God to do the impossible. Maybe you've been doing it all on your own, and you think you got it together. Maybe you'd start praying, God, please do the impossible in my life. Maybe you'd start living as if God, and God can and He will do the impossible. Start talking as if God is there, even when you don't see what He's doing. What is your response when it's the bottom of the ninth and there are two outs and you're down a run and you're hurt and you feel like it's over? Do you give up or do you hit your knees, call on the God of the impossible and trust him even when you can't see what he's doing? Let's pray together. I really do believe that God this morning wants to do the impossible for for folks here. Not someone out there whose story you'll see on television, but for you right here, right now. God wants to show up in your life in such a way that you can't explain it, you can only celebrate it. And I can't make you promises on exactly what God will do. But I wonder this morning, would you turn your life over to the God of the impossible? Would you call out to him and say, Lord, you know you know where I am in the bottom of the ninth. You know where it's over for me. Lord, would you do the impossible? Would you rescue me? Would you walk it off in dramatic fashion? Spend some time with the Lord this morning. Don't leave here today just having watched some video of an old baseball game. But leave here today having heard from the God of the impossible, who through Jesus has given us entrance into the very presence of God, that on our own we couldn't earn or deserve. Trust in that God. Trust in that Savior. Lord Jesus, I thank you this morning for the impossible that you accomplished on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. For the impossible you accomplished through your resurrection three days later. Lord, I pray that the very power of your death and your resurrection will be applied right where we need it today in our bottom of the ninth with a full count and two outs. Lord, may we see you high and lifted up. May we surrender our lives to you. May you do the impossible in and through us. Start in our hearts, Lord, and work your way out. We give ourselves to you this morning, and we trust you, Lord Jesus, the Savior of the impossible. We know, Lord, that we are impossibly lost without you, and yet you have done what seems so impossible, and that is to love us and to save us in spite of it. We give ourselves to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close with a great song, Because He Lives. Sing it as a prayer from your heart.